Greetings, future fossils. Sorry for the delay with this episode, but I was sick for most of last week. At any rate, I'm back, and we have so many extraordinary episodes lined up for you. And this one is a jewel among them with Ayana Young, founder of ForTheWild.World and the For The Wild podcast. Her team is launching a crowdfunding campaign this month called the One Million Redwoods Project. They're funding a massive native species nursery in Northern California. And it's a very exciting project that she'll talk more about in this show. But before we begin, I just want to give a moment of appreciation to the new Patreon supporters this week. Benjamin, Regina, Jen, and Nicholas. Thank you all so much for joining the ranks of the folks who want to help me facilitate important conversations about where we are as a species and where we're headed and how we can envision better futures together. So thank you all. If you're interested, you can look up patreon.com slash Michael Garfield or just search Future Fossils Podcast on Patreon. We have an enormous amount of free stuff on there as well as a subscriber-exclusive music, subscriber-exclusive writing, subscriber-exclusive podcast episodes. Really, it's the best way to stay abreast of everything I'm doing the projects are many and <laughs> very diverse at the moment. So, also thanks to everyone who has been rating and reviewing this show on iTunes. If you haven't already, please take a minute to go give Future Fossils a five star rating on iTunes. It's totally free, it takes about five seconds. And the more ratings on iTunes, the more likely it is that we can get some of the awesome guests that you guys recommended in the Future Fossils Facebook group. I'm really going to do my best to get every single person that you want to hear on this show on the show. And that's the end of me imploring you to do things. But before we begin this totally amazing conversation with Ayana Young, I want to let you know about the Body Hacking Conference here in Austin. In Texas from February 2nd to the 4th of 2018. This is an admittedly weird episode to be leading with a commercial for body hacking. But one of the, the big things here, if you want to talk about the restoration of biodiversity and resiliency, a big part of that is how we relate to our own minds and bodies and how we seize authorship and agency from the corporate institutions, ideologies, etc., that try to tell us who and what we can be. And I have met the most extraordinary people through my interaction with the Body Hacking Conference and community, including one of their organizers, Trevor Goodman, who was episode 15 of this show. So if you'd like to know more about I recommend you go back to episode 15 or to B-D-Y-H-A-X, bodyhacks.com. I love supporting DIY initiatives on the show, whether it's Susan Molnar in episode 19 or Mitch Altman in episode 31. But let's not forget that ecological restoration is not merely the province of large and well-coordinated projects, but that you too can take the restoration of our wild spaces into your own 
hands in whatever small way and in light of the extended ecological self in which the whole world is our body then we can regard the work that Ayana's doing as a sort of holistic body hacking in which the body is our shared entire planet and with that conceptual leap let's dive right into this wonderful episode with ayana young of for the wild dot world so so grateful to you for listening to this show i hope that you enjoy listening as much as i enjoyed having this conversation how large is your land that you're working 477 acres good grief that is that yeah, yeah. You, no wonder I, I was like uh i think this is one of the earliest scheduled calls i've ever had on the show and, and now it makes <laughs> sense because you're keeping agricultural hours yes kind of i mean i don't do any agriculture but um i definitely wake up with the sun uh and work until midnight it's it's a life full of work and service and as exhausted as I am I feel very blessed to do it and books I see a lot of books oh yeah yeah so I I live in a library and I have boxes of the books that have yet to go up oh, my <laughs> video has frozen it surely <laughs> has Let's see. Well, this is actually yeah. this is a, this is a kind of a cool place to start because just for clarification, if we're going to start releasing this here, we know nothing about each other except that we both host <laughs> podcasts and that we were both hired as pr- presenters. Uh, you a, a, as a panel moderator at the Oregon Eclipse Gathering, and that you wear a mm-hmm. Stetson and I wear a Tilly. So, <laughs> so that that so much is nice. clear. Yeah. So this is going to be a conversation of mutual discovery. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated about this thing about what is in a name and Amazon, the globe devouring retailer is, is the like abstraction or sublimation of Amazon, the lungs of our planet. And you live mm. in a spruce shack in a redwood forest surrounded by books, which, like, if if you carry that metaphor through, the books and the forest are both, and I know that you're with me on this one, what little I know of you, that the forest itself f- serves or functions as a kind of library or a repository of of like knowledge information perhaps even a wisdom mm. so i'm i am super curious to hear about your choices with uh, respect to like making the decision to live in this place and in this way and like what brought you to mm. caring for massive acreage of land in a redwood forest and and running a podcast inside this this wooden home with a stove that I see. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's the perfection wood stove from the 1800s that doesn't warm very well, but it cooks magically. And everything I've ever cooked either on top of the cook stove or in the oven is so delicious it's a crime (laughs) it's so good i can't wait to start using it again now i have an outdoor kitchen for the summer times because it would just get way too hot but except 
you know, about this time it's starting to get chilly. We're seeing 40 degree nights, but, um, I digress. So to answer your question, <clears throat> well, it was a long journey to get here. Um, or at least I see it as a, a lifelong journey. Um, I'm 30 years old, but I grew up in a very suburban place of Southern California, not even camping until I was 25 years old, not being around activist circles, not understanding what restoration was, earth care, reciprocity, um, gosh, being with nature, any of those things were not only were they foreign to me, I don't even think I even had a inkling of what that was in the world. <clears throat> but I did have an inkling that something was wrong. And I did have this feeling that I lived in the twilight zone of the suburbs. Like I felt like I would, could just keep driving and driving and I'd always feel claustrophobic because I was like, wait, okay, Rite Aid, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Walgreens, CVS, Vons, Pavilions, <laughs> right? It's like, it never ended. I, and I, and I hated that feeling, but I didn't know that it was called suburban sprawl. I didn't understand the <clears throat> global capitalist system that allowed these corporations to function. Um, except for, you know, when I got to high school, I had a really dear friend named Lorna who gave me an ad busters and we'd go around stealing Bush Cheney signs off people's lawns in Orange County and burning them illegally on the beach. <laughs> so I had this little rebel side to me and, uh, you know, and I would use words like patriarchy and anarchism, but with a really slim understanding of what those were. But so like, here it is like this little rebel inside of me. Um, but I was also wanting to be like a straight A student and really follow the rules, but I love to break the rules. So I had this dichotomy growing inside me for a while. And, uh, and I moved to LA, which really didn't help the evolution <laughs> in the way I wanted it to. It taught me a lot of things about what I didn't want to be and what I didn't want to live inside myself. And, um, it really wasn't until Occupy Wall Street that things completely shattered and my conditioning and what I knew about the world and myself and how I saw the world and how I saw myself in the world. Just, it was this complete unraveling and, uh, creation at the same time. It was beautiful. So, <clears throat> I ended up going to New York to study ecology at Columbia and I dropped out for Occupy because the program itself was pretty terrible. And so here I <laughs> wait, am. Wait, wait, like, wait, I, wait, I wait, 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 <clears throat> I'm not going to make you talk shit about Columbia University, but I am curious. You went to school there for that and it wasn't satisfying mm -hmm. you. And I'm curious what, what it, it was about academia me. that wasn't, yeah. wasn't doing it for you. Well, I'm actually, I don't think all academia is, um, is bad. I'm, I really love studying. I love education. I love research. Um, and that's, I think people can see that from the podcast, but um, how do I say this? Well, the problem that I had with Columbia as an academic institution was there wasn't any talk about the Anthropocene. I was there for a year studying ecology and Eastern philosophy 
And I never heard once the word Anthropocene. I never heard once the talk about the mass extinction. I never heard once um, the intersectionality of climate justice, social justice, environmental justice. Now, that's not to say that there's no professors talking about that there. Maybe I just didn't have them. But it was a very shallow understanding, a very light green environmentalist stance on what was happening in the world. And so it didn't capture my heart. It didn't light my passion up. Occupy Wall Street did, though. Mm. So I went down to Occupy. I ended up the first day I was there in a general assembly completely falling head over heels for a man who was living there who uh, completely helped me uh, shatter, like I said, shatter my identity as this very clean, germaphobic, suburban-raised person. And he was homeless and a dumpster diver and an anarchist. And it was like everything (laughs) that I was not in a lot of ways. And I just, it was like a cosmic burst. And I was somebody who's so afraid of germs and head lice and all these things that I was finding myself wanting to hug him. I was like, what's going on here? Why, why is this happening to me? And I'm so happy it did. I'm so blessed that that moment happened. So we ended up creating the environmentalist group, working group at Occupy. And here I am really having no, uh, education, no background, of how to do be a political organizer, but I just went for it. And that's really (laughs) very much a look into who I am as a person. I just go for things and I, in some ways it's stressful and chaotic, but in other ways it's probably the only way that I can do it. And so we created the, this working group and we are holding these huge meetings in the Deutsche Bank lobby and doing these protests and, and organizing these big days. And it was really fabulous. But as Occupy, was dismantled we ended up going down to patagonia to learn about the melting glaciers and how they were affecting indigenous farmers and there was the first time i had camped and it was just a a very intense place to have my first camping experience in these very windy intense extremely isolated place of the world but it awoken a few things in me i think one it awoken this mad love affair with wilderness and this love affair with being able to be so far out from human development that you feel like you could just walk and walk and travel and travel and travel and not run into a store, a house, a power line. Um, it was just the, such an invigorating feeling. The other thing that I really learned when I was down there was how many creature comforts that I grew up with that I took for granted, uh, running water, um, bathrooms, <laughs> uh, you know, a kitchen that has drawers full of spatulas. I mean, all of these things that just felt like common place to me and being down there and seeing how rural people lived was life-changing for me and so when I came back I remember going into a home and I'm like gosh there's so many lights there's so many lights there's so many things there's so many doors there's so many walls there's so many things (laughs) everywhere what are all these things like I don't I don't I don't even like all these things they clog up my connection to the divine to what I love to what I'm in service to so I think that was one of the shifts and I mean, those were two very big shifts. Um, 
And then I moved out to Oregon. I started studying herbalism. I lived in a little cabin on a mountaintop. I became a commercial mushroom hunter. So I was in the forest all day long, searching the forest floors, looking at the ecology of temperate rainforest, understanding where mushrooms grew, learning about soils. But this was all based off observation. This was all based off an inner knowing. This wasn't uh, an academic learning of the ecology. So when you were Um, were mushroom hunting, that was self-initiated. You were a, I don't know what they call that, independent and just like going in and selling them to the restaurants and stuff or... Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, selling them to restaurants, selling them to larger mushroom buyers that would sell mushrooms all over the world, like the Matsutake that they shipped to Japan. I was picking those. I was picking all sorts of mushrooms. And I got to spend so much quality time exploring every dirt road. You know, I, I, I would just go down every dirt road I had never been down and hike deep into the most isolated places you can still find in the continental U S which aren't many, which is part of my biggest heartbreak being alive at this time is just knowing that humans have developed so much that it's nearly impossible to find wilderness anymore. But can you tell me where they are so that I can go Instagram them? (laughs) I mean, I would, what I would do is I studied Google Maps. I studied Google. I would just look and see. And, you know, if you're looking at forests of the Pacific Northwest, what you'll mainly see, mostly see, is checkerboards of clear cuts. Mm. And so that's what Google Earth or, you know, the satellite view looks like. It's light green, light green, white, light green, lighter green, light green, lighter green. And then sometimes you'll see some dark green patches. Those signify older forests. And so um, it was an incredible time to spend. And it taught me a lot about monocrop forests, taught me a lot about the logging industry. And it really riled up this fire inside of me to do something about it because I was so madly in love with the temperate rainforest and I was so infatuated and lusting after them. And then when I would see a clear cut or I'd see a 20 or 30 year old dug fir plantation versus going into an old growth forest, it was very clear what the difference was. And I would start to learn different species and I would start to see how many species were in an old growth forest versus a clear cut or a plantation forest or a second growth forest or a third growth forest. Now we're up to fifth and sixth growth forest. What? Really? And, uh, yeah. So it's, it's been, um, really because basically what's happened in the logging industry is something called high grading. Um, the logging companies, the industry has taken all of the best quote unquote, best, biggest, straightest, trees and they're having to cut smaller and smaller trees every year just to keep up a quota just to make any meat uh, money at all which is actually subsidized by the government so just like the oil industry it's not actually profitable in and of itself mm. so yeah it was just a huge dive into forest politics forest ecology for me being a mushroom hunter being in love with the forest and I finally found a program that I really connected to, an academic program 
in restoration ecology because as I was mushroom hunting and looking at these forests, I wanted something that was actually tangible, a tangible solution to what I was seeing. And I wanted to have a toolkit so that I could actually support the forest rather than just feeling about the forest, which I think the feeling part is absolutely mandatory. You have to feel to do something about anything. So uh, it's not to say I, I didn't want to feel anymore. But in a way, I also was feeling so many things. And this is where the podcast comes in. As I was in this renaissance of falling in love with nature and learning about the land, I also was learning about politics all over the world, global economies. I was I was like, uh, gosh, a fiend for information and Fukushima power plants. I, I memorized every power plant in the entire United States. I was doing the cesium checks. I was seeing what was going on in the Pacific Ocean and I was feeling the radiation coming down in the rain. And I was listening to 1984 on audio tape. I was like, <laughs> so in the thick of it. And, uh, and it was really crushing and debilitating. So the podcast was born out of that was born out of this crazy, uh, um, overarching fear that the world was ending, um, the world that I knew and it, and the world that I know is ending. So it's not even, uh, something that's just made up in my mind, but I needed some type of guidance from people that could be honest and could say, yes, it is as bad as you think it is. Yes, we are losing 200 species a day. Yes, we are being poisoned and the world is toxic. But, or maybe and, this is how I've chosen to live my life. This is how I've chosen to live in the end times. And how to really be in love. How to love even more fully in the face of collapse. And mm. so that's how the podcast was born. And... um and it's been such an incredible teacher to me, and I feel completely honored to have spoken with people and learned and listened and supported community building in the movement. And so, yeah, so now I'm out here living in what could be considered the modern-day wilderness. Uh, lived in a tent for two years. I, as When I moved onto this land, I said very naively, I said, demons welcome here. And I meant here in my body. <laughs> I said, demons welcome here in Ayana. And they came. They came with a vengeance. And I cried and screamed and flipped out as I was living in the rainforest with no running water or electricity. And the forest just held me. And the forest didn't judge me. Um... I think they knew that I had to go through this in order to be the warrioress that they want me to be and I want to be for them. And um, then I ended up building this little spruce cabin that I'm talking to you in right now, this little spruce library. And, uh, and then it's just been this journey of how to live in right relationship with the land, how to listen to what the land wants from me and how I can show up and how I can dedicate myself to this land and to her relatives and uh yeah so those are some highlights <laughs> those those are some good highlights um 
What is it about that particular place? Because if you mm. if you grew up in SoCal, and this is something that I I, I have actually asked a few uh, of the guests on this show about this because it is a question that is alive within my own heart. Because I've done the whole thing where you go to another place to have the experience of that place, and then you wonder about what it is like to bring that kind of thing home and the you know you seem like someone who is actually very keenly aware of and considerate of the issues of being a person of place and that you sort of merged with this place that you call home um but like i know a guy who can trace his maternal lineage back 42 generations in the in the the area that is now the UK. And so he is this totally white European looking, you know, middle-aged random ass dude who is actually like more deeply rooted in his, in his genealogy and in a sense of his relationship to the land than most native Americans I've met. And I am just curious why, um, what it is about, this spot that spoke to you or called to you or, or, uh, you know, why, why not? I mean, and, and to like put another layer on top of that and why not, you know, you're a child of the suburbs. I'm a child of the suburbs of Southern California. And every time I go back there, it's like sandpaper on my soul. It's like, I want, I want to, I want to make this integration. You know, I want to feel like, like, I feel like I'm doing this intense shadow work every time I go back to Los Angeles. Uh, and that it's not, it's, it's like, I actually feel actively not of that place. And, Ooh. and, uh, and yet time and time again, in my work and actually, you know, in part, like with this podcast, for example, I feel called to work with people and like not retreat to a, 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 like a wood cabin on a mountain somewhere specifically, mm-hmm. you know, like keep like work. And it seems like you've hit a balance with that, but I'm curious, like not just why this place, but why not in the city somewhere where you're more, you know, there's like, more damage to undo or something Hmm. Hmm. well my people are not from this land but I am a northern woman and I definitely come from a northern forested land and so I feel like the land that I'm on is an aunt or a cousin of my people's land and I've been taken in by them and they are my family just as much, just maybe not as close as my um, nuclear family would be. So I feel like my body is meant to be in a place very similar to this. And um, so um, why this land, this land spoke to me. I looked for land. I, gosh, I just drove East coast, West coast, Southern hemisphere, Northern hemisphere, looking for the place that I could be in relationship with. And 
for whatever reason, this land was the land that spoke up and that worked out. And, um, and so why not the city? Well, I think there is a lot of damage in the city. I don't, um, you know, more damage. It's interesting to quantify where more damage is happening. I think if we're quantifying in terms of toxicity and pollution and concrete, absolutely. Like a city does have more, but, um, if we don't take care of our wildlands, our forest lands, our grasslands, where are we going to purify our water to create oxygen, to create the living systems that allow life to continue? And I think that everybody has a role and there's some people's role that should definitely be in the city. And I think people being in the city have a much easier, a uh, much easier access to organizing and to creating uh, movements and to meeting other humans to have more people power because in cities you're so much it's so much more accessible just to be with people to meet up with people to go eat together you know where I live I'm 30 minutes away from a gas station I'm miles away from my neighbors I don't even know many of my neighbors to begin with because people are just hidden away in their forested nooks um, and so I I think that everybody has their place and my place is with the forest and I come out, you know, I come out like I spoke at eclipse and I speak at other events and I have the podcast. I have an educational platform online that I can connect with people. But, um, yeah, I am a woman of the woods and this is where I'm supposed to be because I need to be doing this restore the restoration work. And the only way that I can actually, fight for forest and the only way that I can restore forest is if I'm intimately connected to forest and I cannot be intimately connected with forest if I live in the cities I can be intimately connected with other things living in the cities that I could give my life to and that's I think equally as important um but I need to walk my talk Mm. and if my talk is about protecting wilderness and if my talk is about living closely with the land and if my talk is about all of these things then i need to live that life and that's why i've chosen to live this life um and uh i think it's i think it's a privilege to do what i'm doing i feel completely enormously blessed to live like this and i'm also not just running away into the woods which i imagine doing for years, especially after Fukushima. Um, I was definitely had planned on running away into the wilderness and just protecting myself and being a, you know, a collapsitarian where I was prepping and I was, you know, getting my jam and making sure I was going to have enough food for the end of the world. And, you know, I, I did have that mindset at one point and it's been a really hard transition to actually get out of that and to, um, not live my life for my own immortality, not try to live as if I'm never going to die, but live as fully as I can and make the most influence I can while I am alive. And so that was probably how I got out of the collapsitarian mindset. 
And now the land that I live on, in no way am I have I hidden away. I mean, I've spent the summer creating this massive native species nursery where I'm going to be growing a million and a half plants and trees a year for reforestation. And I have people living here to help me do that. I couldn't do that alone. I couldn't run the podcast and run the entire For the Wild organization, which has many other projects and have a food forest and, you know, a huge native species nursery and make the connections to the communities to figure out where we're going to plant these things. I mean, there's so many, um, there's so many points to that. So it's like I said, at one time I was an isolationist and it was just me and my ex-partner trying to do everything and trying to hide. And now it's me with 25 people that are a part of For the Wild and we're all collaborating every day together. Um, and it's amazing and it's beautiful, but I had to get over the fear of death in order to feel open, um, to feel open to this. I want to talk about breaking up with the end of the world. Mm, okay. Cause that's, yeah. cause that's a big piece of my own journey as well. And why, you know, five years ago, if you'd have asked me, and it was, it was in the wake of Fukushima that I I was subsumed. Actually, it was just before Fukushima that I was in, I had been uh, invited down to Peru to participate in an ayahuasca ceremony. And that was my first experience with that. And the content of that experience was very apocalyptic in its tone. And I came back very convinced, um, that, that the, all the hubbub around 2012 was going to, was anchored in some physical truth that there, that we were about to cross over an inflection point. If you look at things from geological time, if you, if you step back and you look at, this that that you know that it was sort of like if you will the inflection point of the anthropocene that it was you know the middle of this hundreds years long story but that it was nonetheless even though it's not you know some uh hollywood catastrophe in that sense that, mm-hmm. it, that it was still right. that it was still this this very important m- moment in our lives for us to get our affairs together you know, like mm. in whatever sense, you know, write your will, not like you're going to die, but like that, that you only have so much time to like position yourself before the next wave hits you, you know, if you want to surf it or if you want to just like get underneath it and let it cross. Um, and I came, I, and then like the day that I got back into range of the internet, like we were at this staying, my friends and I were staying at this uh, lodge in the woods still, but they had a 3G card and a laptop and they were watching international news and it was the news of the Fukushima disaster. It was my first encounter with civilization after this experience. Wow. And, and so, you know, back then you would be like, well, here we go. But on the other side of that, those breakers, if you will, now that we've, we're like out in the open ocean of just turbulent uncertainty from a historical perspective, then my emphasis has shifted to how can we be good ancestors? How can we start taking this long-term view that, you know, like the horizon of it being 
a matter of a few years that we're like mm-hmm. we're all looking toward and working working up to some mysterious event. You know, like the mm-hmm. transhumanists still have 2045, which to me seems completely arbitrary and masturbatory. There's no Mayan prophecy involved. But like now, I look forward and it's just this infinite expanse of how are we going to fuck it up or not fuck it up? How are we going to, what, you know, what vision do we want to steer into? You know, so like mm. that shifted through a, a, I think through a collapse of, this notion that there would be some like if we can only make it through these next five years then we're going to be able to do this you know like it it just it the more complex the world seems to get or the more uh metamorphic it seems to get it seems like then it's not about this time frame it's not about oh you know the everything is going to be solved by this next innovation or, you know, the things just get messier and messier. And so the time horizon required in order to make sense of it just gets longer and longer. And that's where I've been with it. Mm -hmm. Just like, all right. So now we should be thinking like hundreds or thousands of years ahead. Uh, you know, if we're going to like make sense of and live with total integrity today. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what that stirs up in you, but I am welcome to hearing any of it. Wow. Well, it's a lot for the human mind to <laughs> wrap itself around because I think that humans don't have the answers as much as humans want to believe they do or create languages like mathematics to explain things i think that's just a way for humans to explain to themselves what they think they know and um i do feel certain that we are going through an end of worlds not the end of the world that uh, the end of earth or whatever that means but i think it's also in the definitions i mean it's the end of the world for rhinos is the end of the world for many frogs and amphibians and birds and sea life and mammals and microbes and fungi. It is the end of their world. They are dying. They are going extinct. There's also something that's happening called biological cessation where the earth is changing so fast that evolution can't keep up with it. New species cannot evolve um, as quickly as climate is changing. So I don't want to shy away from the grief that is this time by trying to justify, by trying to feel like it's okay because A, B, C, or D. It's, it's, for me, it's, and, and for everyone, our family is being slaughtered for razors at CVS. Everything beautiful about this earth is being murdered for things that we throw away every day. And I think if we can't look at the hard truth of that, and if we try to stay in denial about that, then we'll never do anything about it. On the other side of that, 
even with this grief and this pain that I carry every day, that doesn't mean that I am trying to hide under a rock. It's like I'm not trying to be in denial about it, and I'm also not trying to be debilitated by it at the same time. Like, I'm still going to get up and be in love. It's like, you know, what do you do if your loved one is dying? Do you just pretend like they're not in the hospital? Or do you Mm -hmm. go to the hospital and do you hold their hand? And do you sing them songs? And do you pet their forehead? And do you kiss them? Do you cuddle them? I mean, these are the things that I want to do with the earth as we're going through this time together. I want to be with them. I want to be with these species and show them my love and also show them that I'm trying to do something about it. So, um, and then how that fits into my own mortality, I think there's a few ways. I think one, I, I don't want to be so afraid of my own life that that's what I primarily focus on is my own well-being, is my own life, is my own comfort, is my own safety. Because uh, if I'm only focused on myself, then I'm not going to put that energy into other species, into other people even. Um, so I, that's a balance, balancing act. The other part for me is if I'm so consumed by myself and my own life, my own life, then what am I willing to risk for others? And that's a question I ask myself a lot. What am I willing to risk for that, which I love? Mm. Am I willing to risk comfort? Am I willing to risk my life? Am I willing to risk my kombucha you know it's like we can go down the list of big to small here and people for the most part from what i've seen even very conscious people including myself still don't risk a lot they we can we can we can know all the numbers of climate change 410 i think parts per billion in the atmosphere of carbon i mean we could we can look into all these things right now and still Make decisions that are killing everything that is spectacular about this earth. And so, um, well, it's abstract, as right? Much Those as, decisions, you know, I like, don't think they're abstract. I think they're very clear. They're very in your face, tangible. It's like you pick up a raw cookie and a plastic clamshell with ink on the label and plastic la- and, you know, a sticky thing. I mean, and that's with coconut that's flown in from Sumatra. It's like, it's not, it's very tangible. It's very in your face. You can hold it. You know where it's coming from. We still make these decisions. <clears throat> and, um, and I'm not saying I'm pure. I'm a purist. I'm not saying that I'm not guilty. I live in this system. I make these choices, but I don't want to stand in this forest with my kin and try to pretend to them that I'm not making these choices that are affecting them. I'd rather at least come up honestly and say, yeah, I still make terrible choices and I am causing you pain and I love you and I'm trying to figure out a way to move forward. And I think that if we could get a lot more honest with each other and with the earth, we'd probably be able to move through things a lot faster than trying to find, you know, a million different psychological ways of lying to ourselves. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking of like, um, specifically the seminars at the long now. Are you familiar with that? 
that group. Uh-oh. I feel like you'd really enjoy this. No. This is a, a group out of the Bay Area. Stuart Brand co-founded it with Brian Eno and and uh, Danny Hillis and some some folks. So it's it's uh, a lot of artists and philosopher types who want to use their estimable privilege to get people to start thinking in terms of a longer time frame. And like one of the things that when they were coming up with ideas for their big project, which was this 10,000 year clock, like a temple that would get people to just think about these massive time frames that we are actively participating in as mm-hmm. co-conspirators in the Anthropocene that they, uh, one of the, people on board is peter gabriel and peter gabriel suggested a clock that the minute hand is like annual flowers and the the hour hand would be redwoods you know that it would be it would all be calculated in plants so they have this monthly keynote speaker comes to their cafe in sausalito and gives this presentation and the last one that i heard was walter mischel who did the marshmallow experiment with children where it's like you can have one marshmallow now or you can have two of them later that kind of a thing um and what he was saying was that and this is what i mean by abstract like uh that the marshmallow is in front of you is sitting there as an as an object of desire makes it hot it makes it like tangible, palpable, it's present. Whereas if you're thinking, I could have two marshmallows later, those two marshmallows are an idea. They're, they're an intellectual object. It's, it's not, it, you know, it's like thinking about baseball during sex or something. It's like you, uh, most, for most people making a decision about the earth conservation does not immediately provide the kind of feedback like they don't get points even i mean as abstract as that is even it's it's like they're not they're you know it's not like immediately i see a difference in the quality of my life in the in the amount of songbird i wake song i wake up to every morning you know it's like all these little things are in these complex systems and it takes time for our actions to filter through those systems and to be reflected back to us in most cases and so like i think it's been a, a you know a, a a long-standing and open question for me about how we could establish systems of feedback even if it's just social feedback that would empower people to make more easily decisions in favor of the conservation or care of their environments because it's like like you said in the city it's extremely difficult to get that kind of intimacy and immediate feedback where you you see it there you throw that plastic clamshell on the ground and it's next Mm -hmm. to a redwood where you are and out there it's next to five other pieces of trash you know on the street it's like eh. so i don't Mm -hmm. know it's but yeah the other thing that i really resonate with that you're saying is about love in catastrophe and this specific thing about grieving like the whole process of grieving and its importance in allowing us to move into the reality of what comes next 
and like when I first time I sat in Sweat Lodge, I was moved during the the sort of the circle of open prayer. I was out of nowhere, just like brought to tears for the honeybees. And there's like this thing about the bees in particular that I, that I've connected with that it's like specifically the task is to hold the tragedy of this situation in my heart and not steer away from it. And yet also continue steering out of the tragedy at the same time. Like the paradox of that, that much acceptance and that much work or like effort simultaneously. And that seems to be key to, I would say like this, our, our, our spiritual salvation right now, if not our survival. So I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I think you made a really good point with the immediacy and people being disconnected from their consequences and that's the way we've set up this world that we don't feel the consequences of our actions like our trash goes to landfills far away from where we are in somebody else's backyard whether that's another country or whether that's a a low-income neighborhood so yeah i think uh, it allows people to keep this really destructive lifestyle because they're not immediately confronted with what their actions do. Um, and the love and the grief, if you really felt love or, you know, for me really feeling love and really feeling grief, it allows me to not throw the clamshell on the floor because if you love you know, if you go into your grandma's house and you really love your grandma, then you're going to want to do the dishes for her. You're going to want to make sure you leave her kitchen nice. If you go into somebody's house that you don't know or don't connect it to, maybe you just leave the dish in the sink. Maybe you leave the dish on the table because you don't feel anything for the place that you're in. So I, I think that feeling, having a connection being that that's the whole point of reciprocal relationship which is what as a dominant culture we've been void of we don't have reciprocal relationships with land with earth with each other with our own lives and how do you have a reciprocal relationship well you have to have intimacy you have to feel things and i love when people say that if you're not upset if you're not grieving if you're not angry if you're not feeling these strong emotions then you're not awake right now if you were awake to the realities of what was happening in the world then you'd have no choice but to have immense amounts of feelings uh of just sheer <sighs> oh, so many things come to mind um but uh, yeah, I think it's a really simple place to start, although it's not easy. It's not easy to unravel all of the conditioning that keeps us from feeling. Um, 
you know, we live in this world that's all about distractions. We can see an Amazon rainforest picture on our laptop computer, but yet the Amazon is being slaughtered every day. You know, so it's like these distractions of social media and television and screens and shopping and stores and the uh, the illusion of abundance and whole foods like all of these things distract us from the realities of the world so uh i think people including myself need to have some type of cupid's arrow struck inside of us to shake us free of the shackles of this mind game that we're in and, you know, we need to have enough willpower to stand up and do something differently. And it is, it's not to say that any of this is easy. Um, but I think that there's so many people that are on the cusp of really waking up and taking a stand. And how do we create community around these things? How do we support each other and not fall into horizontal hostility and not fall into judgment, pointing fingers that, this person isn't doing this right, or they're not doing enough, or they're not this, or they didn't say the right thing. How do we welcome more people into a regenerative movement? Because I think that there are so many people who do care, but they don't know how to care. They don't know how to be in reciprocal relationship because it's not something that we're taught um, in this dominant culture. But there are these you know, these little bursts of awakenings all the time for so many beautiful, beautiful folks. And so I think for me, part of my role that I want to be part of my role is to um, be somebody who's welcoming to others and loving of others who want to step into this work and say, come, like, let's join together. Let's have fun. And I think part of what I want to share with people that are coming into this movement that yes, it's about grieving and, you know, deep, deep despair and fear and all of these things when you start learning, but it's also about massive creativity and it's about like tapping into the endless well of human ingenuity towards uh, regeneration and like what that looks like just to be able to, push the boundaries of our own imagination and that's really exciting and that's really really fun to get with your friends who you love and to be artists for a better world and Mm. we can be artists as we farm we can be artists as we grow food we can be artists as we clean beaches we can be artists as we put mushrooms on oil spills i mean there's like so many ways that we can create and love each other and have a blast while restoring the earth and i think it takes the sadness and the grief to get into that work and then when we're on the other side we can put all of that rage and that fire and that sadness into actually doing something tangible that when we go home at night and put our heads on the pillow we know that we've devoted ourselves to this place that holds us and there's nothing better than that (laughs) that's beautiful I think what I caught in your presentation, your self-presentation, uh, when we first met, and I, I may have I told you this um, when, I, when I said hello, was that this understanding of that non-duality of the specter of our mortality 
and the creativity that emerges as a response and that there is this, you know, you talk about pouring mushrooms on oil spills. When I gave a talk, um, let's see, this was back in February uh, at a festival where I had to follow up. I'm sure you know Jamaica Stevens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of reinhabiting the village, mm-hmm. and, and I was. She's a, a dear friend of mine, and she was giving a talk on the work that she and Becca Dakini did to provide compost toilets for Standing Rock, and mm. it was they were showing uh, video footage from Standing Rock, and it, you know the crying, yelling grandmothers and people getting attacked by you know riot squad police, and just a very heavy mood and the festival had booked me to give a talk about technologies of the future and like it was this you know it just felt completely out of out of place for me to get up following this thing and and give this presentation on you know virtual reality and artificial intelligence and you know what i ended up doing i felt like you know in a way it was like the most soulful talk that i've given because in order to pivot from one to the other, I had to get into how placing our mass extinction in the context of previous mass extinctions with previous catastrophes on this planet seems to me to be one of the, the, the best ways to feel that creativity and that joy and that sense of purpose in our participation in this as more than just the guilt for our participation in this, you know, like seeing, seeing Mm. out at the ways that photosynthesis caused this extraordinary catastrophic event or the way that the first flowers caused this creative response to pollution that, that the, you know, that the first photosynthetic organisms belched all this oxygen into the atmosphere and at that time that was pollution and that there's this weird symmetry between that the the first photosynthesis and the internal combustion engine and like modern factories Mm. and that we're we're sort of it's like the animals turn to fuck things up (laughs) the atmospherically speaking uh and we can take a a lesson from the way that the earth responded to that, which was by coming up with new metabolisms that could turn, that could relate to that pollution as a fuel source. And so when I, when I gave this talk again on purpose rather than on accident, um, I managed, I had just visited my friend's, manufacturing facility he works for an aerospace engineering firm in portland and yet he's one of the most like anchored grounded permaculture he's the guy that taught me about permaculture in the first place like introduced me to the idea of it and he's working in this aerospace firm where they're designing flying cars but out of the the mold for the flying car are mushrooms growing out of the styrofoam and he's like, here, take, take one, you know, take these. And so this is the visual aid now for this talk wow. of like, you know, we can take metabolisms can eat pretty much anything. You know, we can, if there's not already an example of this in nature, it seems like the next you talk about, and, and this is where it gets really like almost like left hand path, uh, tantric non dual for me in terms of threading 
the Anthropocene with, you know, the technologies of the Anthropocene, like making our way through this catastrophe by deliberate and conscious engagement of the same trends and tools that got us into this mess unconsciously in the first place, which is that it seems like true conserva- true conservation activity at this point is now also uh, inclusive of innovation of new organisms or new combinations of existing organisms such that we are able to make all of the trash we have created into food for you know what might be sort of like new ecosystems like that the earth hasn't ever actually seen before and it it's like such an awkward thing for me to consider and yet it seems so clearly what's going on that there's like in the in the sh- the ve- the veil of or in the lining of this this disaster there is um we're being called to a level of stewardship and and like ethical care and foresight that's just insane right now which is considering the you know how we're going to stitch back in e- these ecosystems that we can't ever fully restore to their original condition but how we can prop them up or augment them for lack of a better word so that they function but that they function in ways that they have not in the past and it's all mixed up in there this like the creation and the destruction and how like creation just seems like it would require in some sense a more complete coming to peace with the fact that it's never going to be that way anymore and like at the eclipse festival in in the greenhouses that they had set up out there there was a sign in the soil in one of the greenhouses that said can't go back to yesterday i was a different person then and it was just mm. like it like hit me like you talk about that cupid's arrow just like you know damn mm-hmm. So, I don't know. That's a lot to chew on. Again, I'm bad at that, but take it whichever way you want, I guess. I agree that we can't restore back to what it originally was, but I think we have to ask what are what is originally. You know, are we talking about before colon, you know, colonialization? Are we talking about before the ice age? You know, like there's so many ways that ecosystems have functioned over millions of years. And I think that's an interesting question that doesn't get brought up enough in the restoration ecology community is that most of the time when people are trying to restore, they're trying to restore to around 200 years ago ish. Um, And for me, I'm interested in restoring biodiversity. I'm interested in, in restoring the, most amount of biodiversity as possible. Not so much like I'm trying to go back in time. I'm really trying to look into the future of what climate change could potentially bring and try to create as a resilient of a system as possible that will inevitably have to face large changes. And what that looks like to me is understanding where we're heading or we're headed. Um, 
you know, in terms of, um, heat and water and flooding and droughts also looking at what biodiversity we've lost and and for me it's always this question of how do we protect as many varieties and species as we possibly can and where can we put these species and varieties in a place that aren't going to harm what's already there so it's not about playing god i think it's more about being an herbalist for the earth and really listening to the patient and in a gentle way with natural solutions, try to aid the earth in supporting her own healing. And so I'm really interested in a way of moving forward that is historically based, futuristic thinking, but also low, <clears throat> also uh, gentle and really being weary of technology. I don't want to get so ahead of myself that I think that I know what's best as a human. I want to be more of a support system rather than a savior. And I think it's really important to, for me to, and I think it's really important for other people to, to have that type of respect going into restoration or honestly any kind of support for human communities or more than human communities alike. Um, I think when we have a lot of hubris is when we go in and mess things up because uh, especially with the power of the technologies we have now, we can do things very fast and very big and we can change a lot. And uh, we have changed a lot. So in one way, I feel very urgent. I'm like, yes, large scale, large scale. But how do we embody the dichotomy of large scale urgency and also gentle, deep time thinking? And it's something that I try to balance a lot in my life and the way that I want to create restoration around me. is like I want to be in it. I want to be strong. I want to be reforesting as many of hundreds of thousands of acres as I possibly can as fast as I can and sequestering the most carbon and creating the most habitat and all of these things. And I also want to do it in a way that I'm not being more destructive that I act that. And I also want to do it in a way that models what I see as viable for the future while also using the resources that we have now that we have access to. I know a lot of permaculturalists will be like, Use the oil and the machines that we have now to create swales, to take down dams, to do these things, you know, to do all these things that, like, let's use the oil and let's use the resources that we can make big changes fast. And so I think it's also a question of what are we going to use it for? Um, and so I think about that a lot. And I, yeah, I think this is a time to embody the dichotomy of many worlds colliding and how do we do that in the best way with the most integrity with the most love and fierceness and gentleness and really show up and I think that no doubt people will make mistakes I certainly do but how do I learn from my mistakes and how do I keep waking up every morning and moving forward and uh, I think that's a real test a, a real test a testament to um being fully committed and I think uh, so many people especially millennials have a really hard time with commitment um, and I think you know the, the the truth of it is at least my truth of it is if 
for me, if I want to do anything, I have to commit. I have to really actually do it and know that it's going to be really hard work and know that I'm going to make mistakes and know that I'm not always going to be perfect and know that I'm going to hate some things I do and know that I'm not going to be stoked at every task to do the bigger projects. But that's what it takes like to really commit oneself and to devote oneself to something. It takes it takes that sacrifice and I love sacrifice. I think <laughs> sacrifice is gorgeous. I'm like, sacrifice me. Like I want, I want to sacrifice myself. What, what, what do I just want to preserve myself in a narcissistic bubble so that I can live and die in this, you know, this, uh, uplifting of my own self? Or do I want to sacrifice every privilege that I have, sacrifice every breath that I have to give back to something that I love? Like that sounds so much more fulfilling to me. And it is more fulfilling. I used to be wrapped up in thinking that being narcissistic was the way to go. And, uh, and I always felt chronically dissatisfied with that way of life. And, um, so yeah, that's kind of what your, 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 uh, what you, what you're saying sparked inside of me is how we move forward, how we use technologies, how we use ourselves and how we get out of our own way so that we can give the gift of life back to life. Mm. So who's inspiring you in this way right now? Like who are the, who are the luminaries or, mm. or, uh, like masters of mm. their, their work that you feel are, you're really looking to as examples or, or role models in this. I'm sure that some of them have been on your podcast. Yeah, <laughs> many of them. Um, Which episodes? Well, yeah, uh, there's an episode coming out this week with Candy Mossett, who is an organizer for the Indigenous Environmental Network, and she's from the Bakken oil fields. And her story of growing up on the reservation, her reservation that's just being to- totally slaughtered by the fracking industry, um and all of her stories, these intimate, horrible stories, and how she keeps getting up every day, every day, like, and it's, and her life and her, what she's had to go through is just so horrendous, but yet she's not giving up for any of us. Like, she's still fighting for every person on the earth, including herself and her land. And so I have so much respect for her and Sherry Foytlin and Ariel Duranger and Faith Jamil, uh, these women are facing the Goliath of odds and their heroism just is monumental and so inspiring. And I look at, I, I just, I look at what they're doing and how their strength, oh my gosh, it's, it's beautiful. And I think it can really, I know it really helps me to put my own life in perspective and to see that, um, that I'm okay. And that I can, and then I, I can actually give more because there's people fighting much more difficult fights than I am. And, um, other people, um, goodness. <sighs> or projects, projects, or teams people. of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm extremely inspired by 
the people I have the honor of working with, um, I, Kailea and Molly and Elena and all of these really wonderful creators who I get to be in conversation with all day long. And, um, they're all working with For the Wild now and we get to dream up restoration projects and documentaries and educational platforms and ways to do that in an artful way that is inspiring and really questioning what, how we want to shape our sliver of the movement. You know, what do we want to ask people to do? And I think it's a really good question. Like there's so many times where people are being asked, Oh, text five, eight, six, six, or write your Senator. You know, these are all asks, Uh, come to this protest. Um, and I'm interested in what's beyond that. What are the asks beyond that? And so that's, um, you know, the team and I are really focusing on that. And I feel very inspired to work with them. And, um, I'm like looking at all my books, um, just, there's so many, you know, people. Let's, let's talk about, let's talk about your, your team though, and your projects. Cause I know you've got, like you said, you've got, your land that you're working, mm-hmm. you know, native species. Mm-hmm. Then you've got mm-hmm. the, the show. And then what yeah. else you, you mentioned the, you know, the brainstorming a documentary, yeah. like what other, you said you have 25 yeah. people on this team. So like, uh, yeah, yeah, what are you, what are your passion projects that you guys are pursuing? Uh, or ladies mostly probably. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly ladies, yeah. mostly ladies. There are a few wonderful men as well. Um, but for whatever reason, the ladies have, have taken over the show here. But, uh, yeah, so we have the podcast for the wild podcast, which is growing and I'm so excited for, um, interviews that will be released. Sylvia Earls coming up, oh, an incredible marine biologist, um, Paul Watson, uh, Terry Tempest Williams, who is just an incredible environmental writer and speaker. Um, Candy Moss, it's coming up, Shatesquat Martinez. So we have Clayton Thomas Mueller, really powerhouse people that uh, inspire me. And then um, the One Million Redwoods Project, which is really the native species nursery that's here on the land, but also how we're actually going to take those million and a half plants a year and how we're going to take them out into the world and to damage landscapes and replant and re diversify these um, lonely landscapes so that's the one million redwoods project that we're going to do a crowdfunding campaign for uh, in about next month which we'll have a live event going along with it with a panel very intimate think tank gathering um, to discuss um, how we're going to move forward and bring awareness around reforestation and then uh a campaign I've been working on for the last year is the Tongass National Forest Campaign, which is the largest national forest in the country in Alaska and is the only forest that we are nationally cutting old growth and taxpayer money is funding the cut, the cutting of old growth. We have less than 1% of all old growth in the entire world left. 
So to think that on our public lands with our money, we are cutting the last remaining old growth forest is heartbreaking, devastating. Uh, it's maddening. It's crazy. On top of the biodiversity we're lost, we're losing the black, uh, the black tailed deer, the Alexander, Alexander archipelago wolf, um, the salmon that need these lands to be intact. And the, and in Alaska is really the last place for healthy salmon runs in the world. So we are just going to the last intact places and continuing the ravaging of them. And so this really absolutely must stop. So I've been, I created an art film around it. That's beautiful and really begging the question of love, um, and loss. And that's going out to film festivals, but then I'm doing a little mini documentary series to understand and explain the complexities of the, um, the National Forest Service, the ecosystem unraveling, the economy, and then also native corporations. Alaska is the only state in the country that has native corporations rather than reservations. And so there's a whole <sighs> very painful story in that that needs to be told because not enough people are aware of that. And then, yeah, we have some other exciting projects coming up in the fall uh we're starting a publishing branch which i am so excited about i cannot wait to dive into print work and really exploring creativity in that way it's been a, a dream for the last few months year you know or so and so uh as of november is when we're going to really start getting on that and uh yeah there's so many things in the works and the website for the wild dot world is um going to be updated with everything going on and uh more webinars and i'm i'm clearly <laughs> so fed by this work i can't do anything but this work it's it's I, the only thing i want to do when i wake up and before i go to bed i just want to be fully immersed all the time like I want to be in a pool of pudding that is creativity for earth renewal and that's what I swim in all day and that's actually you know in terms of I just keep thinking about how uh, inspiring I find your life to be and how awesome it is to behold this this kind of thing i you know people t i don't feel this way about my life so much but people tell me they report from the outside that <laughs> it seems very like oh you get to live in this constant flow of inspiration and and to some extent that's true and and it's i, I want to invite you as a person that is not me to talk about that a little bit because i feel like the only thing that i can really offer people from my end of it is that when you do find something bigger than yourself to stand behind and to support with every ounce of labor, you know, all of your effort can go behind something that, that gives you a sense of clarity in purpose that this, this comes easily and that like, you know, like you're saying that the work flows in and flows through of its own accord. And I would love to hear you speak to that and, you know, speak to that in terms of helping uh, empower or recruit people into their own empowered service. Like what do you have to offer people that may be struggling to find mm. that mm. way? 
or mm-hmm. um, you know hit hit blocks with it or you know where what I don't know it just yeah. seems like a well, critical one thing piece when of you, well yeah thank you for that question and one thing is you were saying like people are telling you oh you have this inspired life and you're like yeah I guess like I do and you know you do but also there is just life it's not just the inspired life and I want to start there because <sighs> I do live in a constant state of inspiration and I also live in the real world. <laughs> and it's going back to this idea of embodying the dichotomy of allowing all of the pieces to be present. So when I am, you know, talking about empowering people, I think one thing is that people might be afraid that they're not ready, they're not good enough, they don't know enough to do what they want to do. They couldn't, they couldn't possibly. Oh, but I need to go to school. Oh, I need to be connected. Oh, I need this, that, and the other. And what I want to say is you don't need any of that. You can start exactly where you are. And living an inspired life of service is wonderful and messy and heartbreaking and fantastic and... um and chaotic and it's all of the things it's all of the things and so i'd say if you want to be like for me if i were to give advice to somebody who wants to be empowered i'd say welcome it all in and just be ready to feel all the feelings and be okay with that Mm. and that allows me to be inspired because i'm not resisting certain feelings over others. I'm not resisting life itself. I'm just saying, here I am. I'm imperfect. I'm all of these things, but I'm showing up and I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm showing up and I'm going to cry and I'm going to have good days and bad days. And I'm going to just be a human, but I'm here and I'm in love and I'm in service and I'm devoted. And when I can live my real life in devotion at the end of the day, even if it wasn't a good day, at least I'm fulfilled. At least I know that I'm giving my life to something bigger than that I bigger and something that I believe in rather than sleeping at the end of the, of a not so good day and being like, wow, and I hate my job and I'm causing, I'm creating more of a problem or I'm unfulfilled or I don't know what I want to do with my life or I don't, you know, it's like, I don't have any of those pains anymore. And as somebody who felt a lot of pain, when I didn't have focus, when I didn't have direction in my life, when my life was about my own pleasure, when my life was about my own folly, um, I felt really bad about myself. I felt, and I didn't exactly understand why I just felt like this chronic dissatisfaction. And so, um, what I will say is it's not an easy path, but oh my gosh, it is the most fulfilling path. It is the most grounding path and it is so fabulous to live fully. It is so fabulous to live and allow what you, how you live to bring yourself alive, alive. Like that's what I feel. Then that's what I'm talking about with feeling all the feelings. I am mm. alive. I am so alive. <laughs> every you can say day. fuck on and this podcast. But yeah, fucking alive. I am fucking alive. And it comes with all the emotions and it comes with all of the turmoil and it comes with all of the roller coasters. And thank God, I want to feel all of that. Because the more that I feel, the more that I'm in connection, the more that I am in love, the more that I can actually serve, the more that I feel. So I'd say, 
for the people who want to step into this work and whatever their version of this work is there, I don't believe there is a prescription. I don't think that there is one thing that's better than the other. I think that we all need everybody. And thank goodness we all have different gifts and inspirations there. I can't even tell you how many times I am so happy to be working with people who love to do the things that I hate or vice versa, who are so (laughs) good at the things that I'm not good at. I'm like, Oh my gosh, thank goodness you love doing this because you're so good at it and it's so beautiful that you do that. And then I get to do this thing over here and then we get to like support each other. And that is such, so just know, like you don't have to be perfect. You don't know how to do every, you don't have to know how to do everything. I mean, nor should you know how to do everything. Like that's the savior mentality. So I'd say like, get out of your own way, fall in love, show up, be your imperfect self and just go for it. And every time you fall back down, stand up, brush off your knees and just keep going. Just put one foot in front of the other. Some days, if you're going to go slower, that's okay. If you're going to trip up sometimes, that's okay too. But are you going to keep going? Are you going to keep showing up day after day? Like it's really, I believe about the, um, that type of vow that you take to yourself and that you take to whatever you're serving. And um, I'm so excited for more gifts to be shared. I'm so excited for more talents to be shared with this community because we need everybody. And that's the other thing I think in, you know, the, the dominant culture is very competitive and it's like, oh, like, oh, no, no, like it's so competitive and, and, and you know, we don't want you in because if a new person comes in, then another person goes out. It's like, that's not the case in this movement. More people are wanted, more people are needed. So it's like, oh, if you want in, it's like, come on down, like let, grab my hand and come up on the horse. Like everybody is welcome. We, we need everybody. And competition is just bullshit at this point. <laughs> and uh, even if we got everybody on the fringe, we still wouldn't have the majority of the world's population even. So I just want people to feel really open, really welcomed, and really allowing themselves to release the fear that they're not good enough in whatever way to show up and do the work. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, I had some friends who are really wanting to be masters of certain things. And um, I'm not so sure about mastery at this point. Mm. I don't think that we should throw ourselves into doing things that end up hurting things because we didn't think of things through enough. But I don't think that we should wait until mastery to get involved. And yeah, I'm so excited. And I also want to say, yes, I'm very involved and I'm very committed and I'm also very messy and I'm also very chaotic and I also cry and I also bleed and like we all do no matter who you're looking up to as somebody who's doing really good work in the world we're all equal and um and there's nobody that should be on pedestals like we all need to be holding hands and uh and just passing the baton when we need to I think that's the other part you know for people that are in the movement and who are exhausted and burnout is a real thing. It's like, do we have the community where we're running as fast as we can and people are cheering us on, go, 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 go. And then we slow down and we go, okay, Michael, like here's the baton, like you run. And then I'm going to cheer you on. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. And then like, (laughs) oh shit, shit, shit. Go, go, go. And then like, you know, like let's pass things on to each other. Like we don't always have to be the leaders all the time either. You know, it's, there's, there can be a flow with our work and, how we um, work together in collaborations and 
we don't have to just rely on ourselves to figure it all out. Like we're not going to figure it all out uh, by ourselves. So again, like if that's a fear that people have that they need to figure everything out, like burn that fear because you're not going to probably. Um, but you can be alive and you can live experiences fully. Yeah. I just really want to burn any fear that's keeping people from stepping in and being warriors and warrioresses for the earth. I, I really want people to feel like they, and you know, email me if you're listening to this episode and you want to flush things out more, Ayana at for the wild dot world, you know, send me an email and, uh, let's do this together. Damn. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, uh, the, I'm sure you heard that they just found out that a lot of the Viking graves, the warrior graves, that they, that they found, uh, turns out that they were actually women in these, in these graves. Oh, I didn't know. That's that, interesting. Yeah. I met this, this, uh, Danish fellow <clears throat> and he was telling me that that was a part of the success of the Vikings was that the mm-hmm. women, would get in into the battle lines with the men and they would tie their hair below their chins. And Oh my gosh. That this was, it was believed. Uh, I mean, it was basically sort of downplayed by later Europeans and said, Oh no, 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 these are, these are the graves of men, but they just did whatever DNA analysis of the skeletons. And a lot of these supposedly male graves were actually women. The other thing is that you're talking about the end of mastery and that or rather you know detachment from the fixation on the idea the importance of mastery and i just heard about a study i'm not sure how old this was but they they did this thing where they had students they they took the class they split it up into two groups and they had students try to throw uh, they were ceramic students they tried to throw the perfect pot and they got to spend the whole semester mm-hmm. trying to throw the one perfect pot and then they had oh, the other wow. students try to make as many as they could and then after the class was over they had some third party evaluate who threw the perfect pot and it was the students that were <laughs> throwing their pot over and over and over again and failing spectacularly and rapidly and and just failing repeatedly and reiterating the process and learning from it with a fast schedule of of corrections those were the people that ended up throwing some pot just like quickly and and casually that ended up being structurally the most perfect one because they were not obsessing over this this Mm. one thing that they had to get right you know it's like the um if conservationists for example had given up after they tried to re-release the black-footed ferret into the wild for the first time Mm. and all those ferrets died within 36 hours because they forgot to train them to fear predators like they'd be like oh well we'll just pack it up and go home you know yeah but no it's like you really i mean that the mess i think is you know if we are to be true like servants of wilderness wilderness is the archetype it's like the original mess cleanliness came from defining ourselves in opposition to wilderness you know this notion of Mm. of hygiene and so i i've been writing about 
how the future is going to be totally disgusting to the modern mindset because the future is going to be messy because the future is, mm. is ecological, you know? So the, I mean, like the future, like if we're going to be living in it, then we have to assume this, this ecological mindset. And that means viewing ourselves as open improvisational systems. And it's just going to mm. be completely unhygienic and, and mm. absolutely gross. And mm-hmm. to- obviously if, your life is any indication utterly inspiring so anyway that's that's my final wrap (laughs) um this is super cool and i'm enjoying this a lot but i do want to wrap it up out of respect for your time so maybe just like one final question for you because you seem like you probably have a good answer for this if you think about this conversation as a time capsule type project and that one day it will be heard by people that are not born in this time, then like, what would your message as a person of this time be to people you'll never live to meet? And what would your question for them be if you could have them answer a question for you? The first thing that came to mind is that I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the future generations of humans and non-humans alike for my digressions and for the times that I couldn't sacrifice my earthly pleasures or comforts for their future. And then the question I would ask for them is who survived with you? Mm. That's a good one. Thanks, Ayana. Mm. Anything else you want to say before the... uh... Um, Well, I would say that For the Wild is officially a nonprofit organization now. And in order to restore hundreds of thousands of acres, we need financial support. We also need bodies and hearts and minds and creators and feelers and all of that. So please visit forthewild.world. Learn a bit more about what we're doing and if you can make a financial contribution. And we're starting a uh, crowdfunding campaign this fall. So again, that's another place that you can donate to and learn a little bit more about all of the intricacies of this native species nursery and birth right now. And, uh, and then I'd say, yeah, just... I'm excited for everybody listening that we're all awakening, awakening together and ripening together and how sweet the fruit will be. <laughs> right on. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again for listening to Future Fossils Podcast, a member of the MindPod Network, along with such excellent shows as the Synchronicity Podcast, Third Eye Drops, It's All Happening with Zach Leary, and many, many more. Go to mindpodnetwork.com to check those out. And if you'd like to support the show, give us a rating on iTunes or stop over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thank you, and have a most excellent eon.